0: Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. The National Association of Neonatal Nurse Practitioners represents neonatal APRNs within the NAN organization. NAN wants to represent all APRNs in the neonatal world, so here on NANCAST, we have developed a special series to communicate with all of our APRN members to share hot topics and new developments for APRNs as well as NICU nurses. Nearly all newborns run the risk of respiratory difficulties at birth. We see it every day in our practice, from RDS, TTN, meconium aspiration, and many others. Treating a neonate requires understanding of how the diagnosis presents the predisposed condition that puts the infant at risk and how each infant should be managed, but this comes with challenges. What are best practices for ventilator management, What modes of ventilation is best for the infant? And how do we minimize damage and inflammation to premature lung tissues? To discuss these challenges, please welcome Dr. Kathleen Newman, a neonatal nurse practitioner and neonatal nurse practitioner professor at the University of Tennessee College of Nursing. Dr. Newman's areas of scientific interest include improving respiratory outcomes of the neonate, reducing neck in the fragile infant, improved access to human milk in the NICU, She collaborates with local and national researchers to advance scientific knowledge in the field of improving neonatal outcomes. Let's get right into it. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the most common respiratory modalities that we are seeing in the NICU. And we all know that um, our preemies require a a lot of respiratory support um, in our NICUs. Um, With your experience, can you tell us a little bit about different respiratory modalities that we will be using in our premature population.
1: Absolutely, Jill. I think I'm going to start off a little bit further back about some basic concepts related to our neonatal care and what the baby looks like when they come into our unit and some differences between those term, preterm, and very preterm babies. So if you think about RDS, of course, we understand that's the number one diagnosis in our NICUs. And neonatal respiratory distress is a general term. It's used to describe any neonatal condition that leads to progressive State of hypoventilation and/or hypo, hypo hypoxia, and so we understand that without correction of these things, the infant will likely go into respiratory distress, respiratory failure, and then uh, code blue. So we want to absolutely intervene where appropriate. As we think about the different types of babies that come into our unit and the physiologic differences related to their Respiratory care let 's think about that term infant. you know usually they have some pretty developed lungs at term, and when they come into us they 're likely having some respiratory distress related to some um, antenatal event or some genetic condition or maybe a cardiovascular compromise. Sometimes meconium aspiration will be a consideration. And so all of those components of our history are gonna play into our decision-making tree when we think about the care that they require. When we think about that preterm baby, you know, our bread and butter, those babies that are 27, 28 weeks up until about 32 weeks, you know, they need a little help getting started. Um, Certainly, we hope that they got the benefit of antenatal steroids, which will help, um, you know, stabilize that surfactant delivery system for them. They may be quite comfortable on some non-invasive respiratory management. Um, If they need some surfactant, we can do that and then uh, perhaps move them back to non-invasive. And then we talk about that special population, that very preterm infant that's really very, very small, you know, that 23, 24 to 25 weeks, and that infant is likely going to need some kind of invasive management. We hope we can manage them with just some non-invasive, with some surfactant delivery, and then right back to non-invasive. We understand that Um, with everything that we do favorably for our babies, there is some secondary negative effects. And uh, conventional ventilation is one of those negative effects that affect the baby um, short-term and long-term. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit.
0: I like your talk about the decision tree and and how that drives your clinical decisions uh, based upon you know how's that baby presenting clinically and what is also the maternal history as you mentioned did they receive antenatal steroids or is this a mom that just showed up at the DR doors and precipitously delivered so that's going to really drive your clinical decision making and that decision tree that you speak of and I and I think we often think we focus so much on respiratory, because that's most of our babies that come into the NICU, Um, you know, RDS, that's where they're suffering, meconium aspiration, but how respiratory, like, can affect all the other body systems, and then then what we're caring for um, with these babies, and that's what proves it to be so challenging, Um, you know, as an APRN, taking care of a baby, or a bedside nurse.
1: Um, excellent points. You know, uh, the clinical decision tree, as I said, it comes down to your physical exam. You know, I always worry about the APRN or the nurse that doesn't take the time to really get a good history and doesn't do a complete physical exam on their infant. Because I think that they're going to tell you the story. I teach APRNs at the university that I work in. I teach advanced health assessment and diagnostic reasoning. And so, of course, I just hone in on the importance of that clinical assessment. What is your baby telling you? What does your baby look like? Based on your physiology, your experience, and your careful physical exam, you can come up with a wonderful plan of care for that infant.
0: Exactly. You know, you get a call from a bedside nurse that's concerned about, you know, um, a baby's oxygen saturation dropping or the baby's requiring uh, increased FiO2. And if, you know, on on the phone, you're not going to be able to diagnose that patient or you're not going to be able to tell anything you need to go to the bedside and examine. You get a lot just by observation. And that's, you know, that's, I think, a frustration as a bedside nurse, too, is, you know, we want... The clinicians to be at the bedside to do a full exam so we can get a better clinical picture and not always just rely on what i'm telling you um, over the phone or um, when i see you somewhere to tell you about an update on my baby that i'm caring for
1: excellent point you know you mentioned before about the respiratory system and it certainly is not a siloed system it is in a direct communication with the cardiovascular system Uh, reason for lack of ventilation there might be a neurological insult or a diaphragmatic issue or certainly we see in neck and some of those other systems where the there's compartmental syndrome you know your your diaphragm is tucked so high up in your chest that you can't ventilate that infant so looking at your baby and understanding all the systems that are a component of our respiratory distress will really help you come up with the best decisions.
0: So taking in the systems that you mentioned into consideration, what about the component of a premature baby and how that affects your decision making when treating these babies um, from a respiratory standpoint? So how is that component effective and what is your experience with that?
1: So um, in general, I just want to talk about the respiratory system. We know when they come into our unit, uh, preterm infants especially have a higher airway resistance. They have lower lung compliance and less surface area. So that's some of our challenges. In addition to this, the RDS infant suffers from surfactant deficiency, which we have mentioned. Or even the term infant may have surfactant inactivation because of some infectious process or some inflammation going on in utero. This deficiency can be influenced by the prenatal or antenatal course as we hopefully obtain through that history. Antenatal steroids play a huge role in the infant as we resuscitate in the delivery room. You know, it's the one of the first questions I want to know is, you know, what's my gestational age? What does the baby look like on strip? And have they gotten their beta And then the other therapies um, include some delayed cord clamping. We've seen some really favorable evidence around respiratory care, um, if the baby got adequate cord clamping delay, and then effective resuscitation plays a huge role in the respiratory care of the patient that ends up in our bed in our unit.
0: Now the baby is in our NICU. How would we approach managing these babies? Um, Can you describe to us some respiratory support and management strategies that you would do for these babies? And oftentimes, I think we get confused between managing oxygenation and ventilation. So can you go over some management strategies
1: for this? So the goals of the respiratory support in the DNA really is to provide adequate ventilation. We provide adequate oxygenation as well and adequate lung volumes to improve lung compliance, work of breathing, and reduce lung injury. So remember that even though they work together, ventilation and oxygenation are separate entities. And so when you're looking at your baby and you're thinking about what's going on, is the baby ventilating? Is the baby oxygenating and is he doing both? And so sometimes it's a matter of correcting one of those and not both.
0: I would think that you would have to have a strong foundation on pulmonary mechanics. Can you just review that briefly so we can understand how to effectively manage these babies, especially in our premature baby population?
1: We'll have to think about pulmonary mechanics to know more about our baby. Some of the things that we really want to think about is what is respirations. And in the classic form, it's inhalation and exhalation, right? It's adequate gas exchange through those processes. So the inhalation, of course, is the expansion of the lung. It's partially controlled by the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles. So depending on the pre- prematurity of this infant, there may or may not be much of that going on. This increases the volume in the thoracic cavity, and it decreases the interpleural pressure, which promotes that gas entry into the lung and then exhalation, of course, is the um, passive but impacted force of elasticity and surface tension um, to eliminate carbon dioxide. Connective tissue, or that elastic recoil, stretches and relaxes during each breath. And that elastic recoil is a tendency that stretched objects return to their normal primary shape. So the infant's chest will relax and return back to that um, to that preterm shape. The elastic resistance or the tendency of a hollow organ to return to its original size and shape, when distending or compressing forces are removed is the reciprocal of compliance. So if you think about the poor compliance our baby has, then you know that they can really compress that chest, the alveoli will collapse, especially in light of the surfactant deficiency. It'll be very difficult to open those lungs back up. Um, That compliance will change rapidly after you administer surfactant. We have to remember that because Often we'll have to adjust our, our settings at that point. So, the next thing that's a component of the preterm uh, lung function is surface tension. And we all know surface tension um, is the tendency of a liquid to make up the least surface area possible. So, in surface tension in the lung, that elastis increases. And the fluid line pulmonary surf- surfaces collapse, and that's called atelectasis. So, when we have the administration of surfactant, that coats those alveoli, and that allows that surface tension to be more favorable to maintain that state of um, functional residual capacity or FRC, our best friend in the NICU.
0: So for surfactant, I know that's a, a hot topic um, as far as um, new surfactant administration modalities. Is there a method that you prefer or is there methods that um, you think would be beneficial
1: to these babies? So there's quite a few studies that have been done in the past. And let me just tell you about a couple of them. Um, Some of them were in light of really promoting CPAP use. So uh, a little further down our conversation, we'll talk about invasive and non-invasive respiratory management. But the studies that really surrounded surfactant delivery is there was a support trial, and that was looking at the intubation and early surfactant following by CPAP or versus early CPAP only. And there was a real difference in that primary outcome of death or or BPD in those infants uh, with the use of um, intubation surfactant group. So the CPAP alone did not do as well as that intubation surfactant group. So some units are um, favorably do that intubation in the delivery room. And, it, you know, it might come down to the way the infant looks in the delivery room. So if the infant is vigorous or somewhat vigorous, it's certainly got a respiratory rate adequate to support um, CPAP. We can usually get over to the unit, and then we can make that decision. If that infant is going to require C, um, additional care like surfactant in addition to our CPAP, then our oxygen is going to climb. And that happens because we don't have that surface tension that we just talked about. And so the alveoli began to collapse. And so we need to then administer the surfactant. Most commonly, the surfactant is admi- ad- administered through intubation and delivery through the endotracheal tube. There are some studies that are being done with using a special tube down into the lungs rather than inserting an endotracheal tube. There's still some mixed results of that. So it does take a special uh, skill and learning curve, and so it just can't come out broadly until we know that it absolutely is the most effective way. I will say um, that's really interesting that even the insertion of an endotracheal tube, and some say even the insertion of the laryngoscope will begin to elevate that inflammatory response. And that's the thing we have to remember. So if we can keep our babies without intubation, that's going to be the gold standard. Because if we can reduce that inflammation that occurs during that intubation, then we can protect that inflammatory cascade that is so important in our overall understanding of what's going on with their baby so when the baby has an elevated inflammatory response and they do have an amazing trigger for that but they don't have a very good down regulation of inflammation and so we know that inflammation unchecked inflammation in the preterm infant is a a great damaging agent and so we know that it has direct correlation to ROP, Mm -hmm. to NEC, to BPD and to IVH, of course. So I call it the big four, right? It's our eyes, it's our brain, it's our lungs, and it's our gut. And unchecked inflammation has direct deteriorative effects on these systems. So whatever we can do from a decreased stress standpoint, our neurodevelopmental standpoint, and certainly our respiratory standpoint, we need to reduce our inflammatory response.
0: And I think that's what is driving some of these surfactant delivery administration studies. I know they're even studying an aerosolized surfactant uh, solution that we can administer surfactant, and that would have no inflammatory response. So it's amazing how once we figure this out, like how can we change how we practice and hopefully maybe prevent these kids from having excess lung injury from just an inflammatory response or being vented or extra, like, PPV for administration and, and everything with the surfactant.
1: Well, great point. And, you know, when you think about the delivery room resuscitation and um, if our infant does require intubation, you know, you really want to have that person that's the most experienced at the head of the bed so that you can provide that um, the least inflammatory response possible if you have someone um, beginning practice or needing a tube you know that's really not the time to play around with a 24 weeker because um, multiple attempts is just going to escalate that problem
0: so we talked about surface tension but you know you've mentioned uh, resistance and we take care of a lot of babies that have decreased lung compliance that we're caring for can you maybe go into more detail about um, resistance, lung resistance.
1: Absolutely. So lung uh, lung resistance is really compliance, and it's influenced by several different components, uh, specifically lung size. That is the smaller the lung, the greater the resistance, and the lower the compliance. And this really works in combination with that surface tension that we were talking about earlier. So if you think about the preterm infant, the mechanisms and how they change, what we see in the NICU is a very compliant chest wall, and that offers both minimal resistance to overinflation, so that can be a real problem for us down the road, and little opposition to alveolar collapse, and um, at the end of expiration, so that is atelectasis. We see neonates with surfactant deficiency, as we said, and that increases surface tension, leading to decreased compliance, increased elastis, and increased atelectasis, suboptimal FRC. So I'll just take a moment here and just talk about functional residual capacity. That's the little bit of air left in our alveoli at the expiration point. And without that FRC, then uh, those lung sacs, those alveoli, are going to collapse. And so it's really important that whatever method of respiratory care we deliver, we think strongly about FRC and maintaining FRC in our neonates. You know, I love PEEP. I I could wear a t-shirt around (laughs) that says, I love PEEP, because I believe that PEEP is really the unsung hero of our respiratory management in our preterm babies, and certainly for our non-invasive care. So please remember, FRC is your friend. FRC is going to keep your little alveoli open and that's going to make you be able to rest that night <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to compensate for these factors the preterm infant really increases both respiratory rate and work of breathing when those alveoli start to collapse right we've all seen that that baby becomes more and more progressively tachypnic, and then you start to see the intercostal retractions and then they're working so hard you're like okay he's going to just stop uh-huh. in a minute and over time he did. Demonstrates fatigue without, and then begins the episodes of apnea. We've all seen this really train going down the road here. So, um, the preterm infant with atelectasis is going to get in trouble because then they'll become acidotic as well. We know that we are going to have not only atelectasis but microatelectasis, and this very compliant chest wall will, um, will fail. Um, if you don't have that FRC uh, established and maintained. So I just want to talk a little bit about the typical types of respiratory management we have. Jill, do you have any questions about those?
0: I was thinking as far as when you're talking about smaller lung volumes, um, and when you have, you like peep, right? So um, we find a lot of our babies um, on bubble CPAP, and they just... Their bellies just get more distended, more distended, um, and then you know their their lung capacity is, is competing with their abdominal cavity. How would you suggest managing that? Or what's that fine balance where you're providing enough PEEP for these babies, um, but we're not giving too much, which is causing huge air in the gap in the abdomen?
1: Oh, well, that's, you know, that is a great question. Regardless of the type of ventilation we're administering, whether invasive or, um, or non invasive, whether it be CPAP or some um, rate driven invasive, um, non invasive method, we will have some overwash into the gut. And so it's really important that we remember that we need to wean appropriately. So don't be afraid of weaning. Uh-huh. You know, um, if you've got that much overwash in your belly, you're just gonna compromise your diaphragm and then that's gonna put you in a bad way. You may wanna think about continuous feedings so that you don't put so much volume in your gut that you're having a difficult time um, through that overwash that we just talked about. And the other thing is, not only do you wanna wean appropriately, but you want to vent. So we have to remember to vent our tubing. Now when you're continuously feeding an infant, that's tough. So if you're bolus feeding your baby, you want to absolutely make sure you vent your your tube after your feeding stops so that it can passively decompress your stomach. If you're doing um, continuous feeds, some units have suggested and use uh, a different tube that's maybe mid-thoracic and they pull off air that way. That's a lot of tubes in that little (laughs) body. Um, So I don't know what the best solution is. Sometimes proning your infant if you don't have umbilical lines will help compress and stabilize that chest wall as well. So those are the methods. That I've seen in the literature that might help you, um, but it's not a reason to intubate a baby. Oh, yeah. So, great question. So, let's talk a little bit about the different modes of um, respiratory care. So, we have invasive and non invasive, as I've said. The invasive are typically conventional mechanical ventilation, and then we have oscillation and, fr- and jet or uh, high frequency ventilation. So the advantages and disadvantage of these are varied. Um, obviously, you have an endotracheal tube in place. That's going to decrease the mobility of the infant, the ability for the parents to engage with that on their face. Um, you can still hold them, though. Make sure those parents <laughs> hold them. Um, and then mechanical ventilation delivers gas intermittently to the patient with the goal of approximating that physiologic tidal volume within the lungs. High-frequency ventilation applies a a smaller, uh, a, a rapid rate with a small volume, so you're ending up with a similar picture but in a different method. A lower airway pressures, there, thereby reducing any kind of volume trauma or barotrauma. So uh, you can use a high frequency method for rescue, as some units do, and then you can also use a high frequency ventilation strategy for preventative care. So if you're dealing with the extremely low birth weight infants, those babies that come into your unit at 22, 23, 24, and maybe 25 weeks that are at high risk for air leak or some kind of uh, ventilation challenge, then sometimes those methods of um, high frequency can really help you out. The JET is typically used for air leak syndrome. So we use that for those patients that might have a PIE or at risk for PIE, and that's why I mentioned the JET in response to those very small infants. And then certainly if you have a baby with a pneumothorax, those babies really will benefit from having the jet ventilation in, in place. The rate is typically set at around 360 for 24-weekers, but it can be adjusted up to 420 and is and, and lower in the 200s as well. The tidal volume is primarily dependent by the delta P, and the oxygenation is driven by the uh, mean airway pressure in the jet.
0: I like how you said rescue versus preventative were the modalities and, and how that would help drive your decision on how to choose which modality you want to use It's this like preventative so let's put this extremely low birth weight on a on a high frequency ventilator whether the jet or the oscillator instead of waiting till it is a rescue
1: Exactly. And that's, you know, at that point, there's already damage that's done. So I've worked in units that use it as preventative care, and I've, and I've worked in a unit that use it as rescue. And those, um, when we had a baby coming in from the delivery room that was a 23-weeker or for transport, we would have the jet ready to go, warmed up, ready to go. And, and I think those babies did better. But that's a cultural thing. It's an attending decision. Obviously, we all as APNs have to work with the entire medical team. And so that really is culture driven.
0: Yeah, and it's hard. It would be nice if it could be standardized across the board for small babies. Like every small baby should be put on some form of high frequency for preventative measures as opposed to rescue. But we all know it's very hard to get a whole medical team to to you know, agree on the same thing. So it might not ever happen.
1: As we get more um, ingrained in those very early babies, and I think that becomes the standard of care, and we develop bundles like we have for, you know, VAP and NEC and other other preventative care, I think that we'll see some really strong evidence around those bundles, and that will include preventative management uh, for their respiratory care.
0: Yeah, and the outcomes we're having of these uh, extremely low birth weight, like edge of viabilities are are getting better and they're improving. So we need to adjust our science to to meet with those um, babies that we're being able to care for and that are thriving after.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And we want to do the best job. That's why we go to work every day and we don't want to do anything um, that would hurt our babies or um, make them suffer. And certainly we want to all practice according to evidence. And so the the more and more of these very early babies we have and the care, standardized care, um, becomes across the board and it's Empirically studied, then we can um, make good decisions. Right now, there's just pockets of information, so there's not a lot of clear evidence. So, the other type of um, uh, uh, ventilation, high frequency ventilation, is of course the oscillator, and that is um, Used, it's a, a, a different technique, but it's also used typically for oxygenation for the infants um, that are really struggling with oxygenation. Although some units are just more comfortable with that level or that type of care. So you have some units that just love the jet and other units that love the oscillator, and sometimes they don't even own one of those other pieces of equipment. But if you get into a bad way with a child with pulmonary hypoplasia or some kind of real difficult oxygenation issue, um, you know either one of these modalities may work for you. So the mean airway pressure is controlling your oxygenation. You have hertz and amplitude that really help with your ventilation on the oscillator. And then it's primarily used for rescue treatment of acute lung disease. But again, it certainly can be used for preventative care. Um, especially um, helpful with VQ mismatch. So when you begin to have those alveoli that have collapsed and you don't have that circulatory volume to exchange gas at the alveolar level, so you're really having trouble with the blood pressure and other things, that VQ mismatch may really um, be helped by the oscillator. Um, the Hertz is usually uh, one Hertz is sixty breaths per minute. Just so you know that, and the typical range of the Hertz is three to fifteen. Um, with the initial settings, typically five to six. The things that you have to remember when you put a baby on the oscillator is that. Um, you can have cardiovascular effects, and so they can really dump out their blood pressure, decrease venous return, decrease cardiac output. So you want to just be standing by watching that blood pressure and making sure that you're ready to go with some preventative care or help with that. You can also have a slightly increased incidence of intraventricular hemorrhage. Although, hopefully, with our delayed cord clamping, we're seeing a little less of that, um, not quite the variability of blood pressure and blood pressure extremes, and then increased interthoracic pressures. So both of these, high frequency and conventional ventilation, is a means of increasing the mean airway pressure, and it's used to optimize lung volumes, and it will increase the alveolar surface area for gas exchange to improve oxygenation. So um, that's, that's one method. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail unless you have questions, Jill, about the different types of modalities of invasive um, respiratory management.
0: No, I think those were some great um, overviews of how they work and how you would manipulate settings to, you know, affect your oxygenation, your ventilation, as you described, in the VQ mix match. Um, but I was just wondering what... I think there tends to be a a push towards non-invasive ventilation on some units. So what are those like? What can you go over some non-invasive ventilation?
1: Sure. Uh, Those are my favorite thing to talk about. So non-invasive ventilation is typically CPAP, um, NIV, or non-invasive ventilation, high flow nasal cannula, and nasal cannulas. So let's talk first of all about what decision tree you would have of what you would use. So you've decided that you're going to attempt non-invasive ventilation for this infant, and they have a nice respiratory pattern. They have no um, obvious apnea at this point in time, and so you may want to try to get by with just some PEEP to start with. And so PEEP is delivered, of course, through CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. And CPAP can be delivered by mask or prongs, I choose to rotate those devices every four hours and check their skin carefully. Um, so CPAP is really been used since the 1970s. Has vast evidence. Um, there is two types of CPAP. Bubble CPAP is the classic Columbia method. Um, so you know, not to advertise anyone, but um, but. You know, certainly that bubble CPAP and the bubbling action will help maintain that FRC that I said is so incredibly important. The other type is variable flow CPAP, and that is um, just a different types of method. It's both humidified. They both are delivering um, PEEP or um, maintaining that functional residual capacity. They can be delivered, either one of those can be delivered with supplemental oxygen if needed. And uh, typically, the marker for looking at efficacy with CPAP is, are they having apneic spells? So that's when you'd have to take it up a notch, if you will. Because if you're having apnea, then you're just collapsing those lungs. And then the other marker for failure or need to increase would be oxygen need. Oxygen need. So how much is your supplemental oxygen? And that's unit Variable, but across the board, evidence wise, 40% is absolutely where you would say need to go somewhere else. Some units use 35, some say 42, you know, we'll, we'll use it a little more, but, um, but absolutely 40%. If your baby's creeping up to that 40% supplemental oxygen rate on CPAP alone, you're already up to CPAP six or seven and you've got, you know, uh, not a lot of apnea going on. It's just an oxygenation issue. Then you may have to have a rate driven, um, Intervention. And that would be non invasive ventilation. So you would then provide a method to provide a peep and a pip and a rate. And you can adjust that just like you would do a conventional mechanical ventilation. And remember that what's delivered in the nose is escaping before it gets to the lungs. So very different parameter of an endotracheal tube where that flow and that um, pressure is going directly into the lungs or to the trachea, certainly. So closer to the lungs. So you don't have as much loss or... washout. So you may have to adjust some of your settings based on that. So non-invasive ventilation um, can be used with nasal prongs or mask and can be rotated appropriately from that. And um, And then hopefully over time, the baby will stabilize, the oxygen will fall, and you'll be able to transition back to CPAP. Of course, all of these are used in conjunction with some of our therapeutics like caffeine Um, so we want to make sure your caffeine has been delivered if you're having apnea especially make sure that you have a good caffeine level some places use levels some places just treat to effect don't want to look at their level (laughs) don't want to look at my level either Um, so those are all important so the biggest question is is your baby apneic is your baby on a lot of supplemental oxygen? That'll kind of drive your decision tree to whether or not you start with a rate-driven, non-invasive device or CPAP alone and then um, go from there. CPAP alone, um, you can start with a, a PEEP of you know five or six based on what your lungs sound like and look like and how much retraction there is. And then certainly if um, your oxygen level is you may think about weaning that flow just very slightly. Now there's a lot of there's a lot of information out of the literature right now about um, non invasive excuse me um, high flow nasal cannula versus CPAP so I just want to talk about that for a minute Jill.
0: That's great because there is there's a lot of controversy and I think the push towards any kind of non-invasive ventilation that gets the discussion going between what other modalities that we can use as opposed to just the ventilators that we've been using for years.
1: So um, I know units love high-flow nasal cannula. Um, Some units just hate CPAP. And we understand that it can be difficult to care for. It can be difficult to keep in place. It can be, um, difficult on the skin structures and it can erode the nose. Um, so ultimately it takes a lot of nursing care. It absolutely does. And, um, and to be successful, it really has to be that um, because it has to be a tight-fitting apparatus so that you can get that seal and you can deliver that FRC. High-flow nasal cannula is, um, is, uh, has been effective at, el- at eliminating dead space and reducing the work of breathing. It also improves lung compliance at higher flow rates and delivering some degree of CPAP, it's thought. But it's not been proven. Um, And although some centers, like I said, have a great affinity for high flow cannula, CPAP has absolutely been proven to be superior the hipster trial um, stated its results when it used a primary support for pr- uh, preterm infants with respiratory stress high flow therapy resulted in a significantly higher rate of treatment failure than did cpap and that's been shown over and over again and remember all high flow is not the same so some units use high flow some units use vapotherm and so Know what you're administering and know that it's maybe not been tested well on your preterm population. So understand um, what you're administering. You're in charge of that infant as an APRN and you are in charge of what happens if things don't go well. So explore the evidence. Use evidence-based practice. And um, I will say that there is some evidence of increased BPD with high flow nasal cannula. There's increase in um, neck with vapotherm. Um, Not to call anybody out and certainly not to take risks, but that is in the literature. So use your decision-making, look at your baby, and then select the right mechanism. And don't sit there. If it needs to be weaned, wean it. You don't want to send a baby home on CPAP. So you have to come (laughs) off of it sometime. So, um, anyway, just a couple of other considerations. I'll just mention, um, You know, certainly we talked about neck and the increased abdominal distension related to neck and how that can compromise that diaphragm and how it can really make ventilation difficult. I've actually had a baby with necrotizing intracolitis when I was a staff nurse at the bedside and the surgeons had to actually release the stomach, the abdomen, um, the abdominal cavity so that we could ventilate the infant, um, which was horrific. But it had to be done um, so the other things that I think about is pulmonary hypoplasia you know you know that those babies are going to require an incredible amount of pressure to support that lung that underdeveloped lung and we know that those babies are babies that were likely uh, ruptured for a prolonged period of time and so that lung just didn't grow diaphragmatic hernia is an example of a, a you know pulmonary hypoplasia and they're difficult to ventilate and so they may have to use one of the high flow or high frequency ventilations to really support them and support them so you don't have four chest tubes in that chest um i will s- just take a moment because i feel obligated to do that uh, thinking about the ethical dilemmas as apns we really do face sometimes you know sometimes we look at the evidence we explore the evidence we believe we know what the right thing to do is and then unfortunately we're not we're faced in a situation where we don't have that equipment we don't have Enough equipment, we don't have respiratory care that can provide adequate coverage for our infants. There's lots of things that can happen in the day to day world, especially in our post COVID, highly stressed, low, low vol, you know, low um, staffed and high census because everybody got pregnant uh-huh. during COVID. Yeah. Uh-huh. We are awful. Uh-huh. So um, I, I just want to remember that, you know, Use your practice um, according to the evidence and so that you can go home at night and, and rest your head.
0: We all know I'm treating um, our babies with respiratory issues. Um, we are providing them oxygen, which is a drug as well. Um, so can you talk to us about how to effectively titrate our FiO2 on these babies and, and, and how to feel comfortable doing so?
1: Absolutely. So you have to think, as with every other component of our respiratory care, what's going on with our infant. Whatever the um, baby's condition is uh, will really dictate the amount of oxygen they need. For example, you may have a preterm infant that has uh, you know, pulmonary hypertension and requires a great deal of oxygen. Or you have a baby that is on um, a low volume oxygen. The key is that we have to follow our oxygen saturations. These are preterm infants. We all know the relationship between too much oxygen delivery and ROP. And so um, I worked in a unit that had a picture of an owl beside each baby so that we would remember to titrate the oxygen. And it can be tough. Oh, those alarms going Uh off all the time, binging and bonging, because of that compliance change. So remember as you think about what's going on in your baby's lungs, and as that compliance is changing back and forth and that oxygen becomes more important because it's a vasodilator that we have to remember to reduce it as well. So just remember the relationship. Nothing we do works in a vacuum. So careful titration according to oximeter rates is really important. And there's a lot of strong evidence that goes with that. And I'll just mention one other thing before we close, and that's permissive hypercapnia. So I said wean, wean, wean whenever you can. So a lot of our units are using permissive hypercapnia, some uh, allowance of those elevated CO2 levels so that we don't uh, aggressively ventilate that infant uh, with scarring and damage to their lungs through barotrauma and volutrauma um, so that we can just accept those CO2s and that upper fifties, low sixties, without um, without compromise. Looking at that acidotic number two. <laughs> so thank you so much. Oh,
0: thank you. I, I really appreciate you joining us today. I think um, just all of the information that you were able to talk to us about different respiratory modalities, as also you know, remembering us to always look at the evidence, and that is so important. And examine your baby. And Peep is your friend. That's
1: right. Those are my those are my take-home points. <laughs> thank you.
0: I would like to thank our sponsor, Sentech. This podcast would not be possible without their support. Make sure you never miss an episode of Nancast by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.